Welcome to this gift podcast, weekly conversations on global travel trend lines. Overtourism is a term Skift coined and a topic we've led reporting on for more than a year now. We're not alone anymore. Now headlines like Overtourism plagues great destinations and Iceland too many tourists are becoming commonplace. Instead of just writing about the problem, though, we've been seeking solutions. And on this episode of the Skiff Podcast, we've got a conversation about the way destinations can start to address the problems of overtourism. Our conversation first took the form of a skiffed call not too long ago. There were some slides that went along with the call, and those can be found at skiff.com slash overtourism slides. I'm news editor and podcast host, Hannah Sampson, and joining me in the Skift office were senior writer, Andrew Shavakman, who's been writing at length about overtourism, as well as tourism reporter, Dan Peltier. And joining us remotely was Megan Epler-Wood, director of the International Sustainable Tourism Initiative at the Center for Health and the Global Environment at the Harvard School of Public Health. She also is the author of a book titled Sustainable Tourism on a Finite Planet. Here's the discussion on overtourism solutions. Andrew kicks it off. All right. So as tourism growth has increased across the world over the last decade plus, so too has the rate of change experienced by residents and locals in the world's most popular destinations. Backlash in Barcelona against tourism has been intense in recent years with the government attempting to restrict tours and ban new hotels from opening in the city center. Venice, as well, has faced a crush of cruise tourists in its city center. Iceland is perhaps the poster child for the ramifications of increased tourism. After undergoing currency devaluation, Iceland became the biggest viral travel destination of the decade. The country's still dealing with the effects of this. Amsterdam recently has banned tourist shops around its main drag and is looking to limit the ability of tourists to get around on bikes. Berlin um, and Greece as well have faced a backlash against foreigners and challenges, um, particularly in Greece, Greece, around an economy that has been retooled around tourism in recent years. And these represent uh, only a handful of the destinations around the world that have been adversely affected by increased tourism. In my recent story, Proposing Solutions to Over-Tourism in Popular Destinations, a Skift Framework, I looked at five different ways that destinations can work to combat over-tourism. These include limiting transportation options, making tourism more expensive, better marketing and education, better collaboration among stakeholders, and obviously protecting overcrowded areas. Now, briefly taking a look at um, European tourism projections, you can see that a huge percentage of the visitors expected uh, to visit over the next few years are from other EU destinations. Um, As travel across Europe has become cheaper, more people are traveling. As well, global low-cost carrier growth has surged. The last few years represent only the beginning of the problem that is now afflicting 
the world's most popular destinations. So um, our guest today is Megan Eplerwood, and I just want to read a quote that she told me when I talked to her for this story before we uh, put her on the call. So what most people have seen is that government and industry are not collaborating enough. They need to see the stakes are so high that joint solutions are necessary and have to be based on data, not just industry data, because they set their own parameters. People, be they from the industry or a destination, don't want too many people swamping what is a beautiful cultural or historic site. Anna? Thanks, Andrew. Um, we have some questions. Um, we want to involve Megan in the discussion here. So, Megan, you're there, right? Yes. Hi, Hannah. Thank you for having me. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. Um, so, Andrew mentioned in his intro a handful of possible solutions. What do you think is really the number one thing that destinations dealing with over tourism should be doing right now? Uh, I think they should be investing in planning, to be frank. Um, uh, so much of the funding that uh, comes in from tourism to destinations um, actually uh, goes towards taxes, which actually go towards marketing the destination. And this is a vicious cycle that will be very difficult to arrest until they start to, I would say, reconsider uh, the tax funding that they do receive from tourists. So, how do they get, how do, how do cities or destinations really get themselves into a situation where they have more tourists than they can handle? Um, you mentioned kind of this loop of taxes and, and destination marketing, which kind of feeds into itself in a circle. But what are, what are the factors that contribute to it really just getting out of control? Well, I think uh, part of it is uh, what Andrew identified in his uh, terrific article, uh, cheaper air travel, especially in Europe, uh, is uh, leading to many more primarily European tourists swamping their own destinations. So sometimes we do have a picture of outsiders causing the problem. But in fact, uh, in India and China as well, we're seeing uh, the global middle class growing so greatly and travel becoming so uh, accessible to uh, all people that all destinations will have to rethink uh, the number of people they're going to be managing in future. And so that's just, uh, that's the 21st century and welcome to, uh, you know, all of the issues that we need to confront. Yeah. One of the one of the reasons that we hear so many communities really embrace tourism is to spur economic development. And, um, you know, every time you talk to somebody in the travel industry, they talk about the benefits of tourism and, and all of the economic impact, tax dollars and all of that. Is there is there a fine line that um, balances that? benefit that kind of influx of cash into a community uh, that can balance that good with the, the bad that we're seeing in some destinations? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what we teach at Harvard um, is uh, that you need to look at economic yield, um, not, uh, you know, 
gross numbers. What we see uh, from all of the global institutions that look at economics of tourism uh, is, is that they're looking at gross impacts. In other words, gross impacts from the point of view of total dollars reaching the destination. What they don't look at and really is very difficult to even determine is what is the yield or what is the net to the destination. And early uh, research into this uh, shows that many destinations are actually losing money. Uh, so I can talk about that. But it comes from the amount per tourist that you have to spend to keep a tourist properly managed, uh, such as even toilets. In Venice, a great example that I hear often is when cruise ship passengers get off and they go to Venice, uh, there are not enough toilets in Venice to actually accommodate them. So that's a really simple and somewhat funny example, but it's not that funny when you think about it because it does mean that their entire uh, septic system is overwhelmed. So, so these are the costs to managing tourism that they're not that much fun to talk about. But on the other hand, and it is how you achieve yield, which is covering your costs. Sure. Um, I think we maybe have, before we move on to any of our other questions, I think we might have just gotten a question. Let me go ahead and I'll pose this to you, Megan, and then we have some more. Um, does your, yeah, okay, this is good. Does your definition of over-tourism include places like, or do you think places like Antarctica and Galapagos where not that many, you know, you can't have overwhelming crowds there, but there's such fragile ecosystems that even small numbers of tourists can have um, an outsized impact. Do you, do you think about places like that when you're thinking about over-tourism? Not yet. Um, I think that those areas of the world, though challenged without question, have a very good protection strategy in place. Um, whether or not uh, they will be able to respond to this growing uh, demand on their resources and get enough uh, so that they can manage tourism in an equitable and fair way for local people in addition to natural resources, I think is an open question. But I do think there are other, you know, very stressed places that tend to be cultural monuments that come out in my research, particularly Angkor Wat and Taj Mahal are two extremely stressed, uh, you know, in highly important international destinations that don't even have really a good plan in place yet. So that's the kind of places I tend to talk about. I think um, I want to loop Dan in here because I think he has written some about uh, sites around the world that have a, a big number of tourists coming, but that are not they don't even have a plan. And I think there's a, I think there's like a surprising number of destinations around the world that don't even really have a tourism plan in place. Um, Dan, talk about a little bit of some of your um, findings when you have written stories about kind of how popular places are really dealing with or not, <laughs> not dealing with um, the tourism challenge. Sure thing. Hey everyone. Thanks. Um, so that's a really good question. And I think, you know, we've already been talking about Greece, Venice, Barcelona, and one of the common threads when I see those three names is, of course, um, unfortunately, corrupt government institutions um, over the years, Greece with its economy, um, especially during the past decade, and, and really all of them not having um, sound um, 
in one way or another, tourism and government institutions that um, have been working, you know, consistently to address um, and and be proactive about tourism challenges um, in in the first place, um, like many other um, DMOs and tourism boards have been doing for a long time. Um, I think one of the interesting things um, that some uh, regions are trying to do uh, to um, better, and I think it even goes beyond um, over tourism to better all speak on the same page um, is something that uh, Southeast Asia, um, the ASEAN countries um, are really looking at. Um, they're trying to create kind of something similar to um, the EU uh, and making it easier for um, citizens of uh, Southeast Asia to travel um, throughout the region, um, make it a visa-free block. I mean, it's interesting in one of the charts um, that uh, Andrew highlighted in his story that really, of course, in the EU, um, overseas tourists are, of course, a, a big factor um, in why cities like Venice and Barcelona and Amsterdam are experiencing um, visitor challenges. But really, 35, I think, percent of it was from EU citizens um, and people traveling within the region. Um, so really, when um, other regions like Southeast Asia are thinking about making it easier for people to move about the region. That's also something to consider um, that overseas tourists will continue to add to the burden, but also um, how to improve the infrastructure and, and communicate tourism benefits and, and, and how to travel responsibly to people that, that live in the region. So I think that's interesting. Also, the Pacific Alliance. Um, in South America that includes Chile, Peru, um, Colombia. Um, they, that, they've also seen increased tourism um, as a result of creating that alliance that allows for ease to travel between those countries. Um, so that's, uh, that's something interesting uh, that I'm finding, at least, in terms of how governments and tourism boards are trying to um, get on the same page and start tackling these challenges. I want to ask this next question to Andrew and Megan both. Um, I'll start with Andrew. You've been to, you know, one of the central... <laughs> to Iceland central where locations. everyone has gone or will go quite right. soon. Like literally probably half of the people on my Facebook feed were in Iceland yeah. this summer. Um, but are you... I mean, is it too late, I guess, basically, is my question for Iceland. Um, you also did a pretty extensive story about New York City and how they're kind of trying to spread tourists around. Is it too late for some of these cities? And then, Megan, I want to pose that question to you, too, after Andrew. Yeah, um, I would just say that when you think about a place like Iceland that is seeing 30% year-over-year tourism growth, if you were to just slow that down to 10%, 5%, if you can slow it down, there's a better chance of being able to cope with the adverse effects of tourism. What you've seen in Iceland is um, sort of a limitation on developing new hotels in the city center. And you see that echoed in places like Barcelona and many other cities where they're concerned and they are taking steps. Right now, it remains to be seen a little bit if these, if these aspects of policy will indeed slow down tourism. Uh, Megan, what do you think? 
Well, um, as you know, Andrew, I'm working really hard on some new tools to help uh, local authorities manage tourism. I like to see see tourism as a river, it's, and it can be either like a fire hose, like rapids, as you're saying, in which you're seeing very rapid growth. Uh, so it's like rapids are almost flooding into an area, or it can be uh, a slow stream, or it can be drip irrigation. And, and I favor drip irrigation. Um, and that means, uh, you know, that a slightly more high value, I'm not talking about luxury level necessarily, because it is possible to create slower growth with mid-value uh, mid tourism. How is that achieved? It's done by very good zoning and regional planning. And we at Harvard are trying to make new tools that will be visually uh, managed through geo-design, which is a kind of geographic information system that will allow citizens together with their local authorities to talk about how they want to move tourism around in the landscape. Uh, it's really like creating dams in some places where the river, they just don't want it anymore, or, or sort of channeling it so that it becomes a slower flow in certain areas. And then, of course, re-channeling it into other areas where they really want it. And that's something that takes uh, cooperation, as we started talking about at the beginning, between governments business and and I might add local citizens. So that's what I say is the best way to think of it is a kind of a channelization project of a river. <laughs> are you are you hearing much interest or are you at a point yet where people are expressing interest in um, using those kinds of techniques? I mean do people that's a great people need and want your help? <laughs> we hope so. Uh, we're launching a, the first course ever on advanced regional planning, sustainable tourism, and geodesign this uh, spring at Harvard. And we're going to be using Sardinia as our, our site that all of the students will be able to work on. How do you manage tourism from this perspective? Everybody can get their hands on. It's all online. Uh, so we're very oriented towards participatory processes to involve anyone in the world that wants to get involved. And what we're doing, I might add, is open source. This is very important and why academic institutions are great partners for municipalities, because we're not looking to make the maximum buck through a big and expensive consulting project, which is what is generally done, I'm afraid to say. So will we get a lot of partners? I hope so, Hanna, because I think we really offer what is the most advanced and yet the most economical way of approaching it. Um, if people are interested, is there, uh, is there a website they can go to or is there kind of a place where they can go to find out a little more information about this? Yes, it's uh, on your website. It is the International Sustainable Tourism Initiative at the Harvard Center for Health and Global Environment. And on that website is something called Advanced Tourism Planning. And uh, it is where I'm going to give you these. No, sorry. It's called Smart Destination Management. Okay. And that's one of the four areas that we're doing research on. And um, it really is our belief that this kind of 
very uh, advanced GIS planning, which does not require technocrats. This is something that even citizens can do with their cell phones. So we do believe that this kind of uh, tech enablement, enabler, will bring more people to the table so that it isn't a top-down exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have a handful of questions, and we're going to get to those. Um, Here we have one, uh, a quick one from somebody who just texted us. Um, He says, do you have advice for individuals hoping to make a positive impact and begin a career in sustainable tourism? I should say he or she. I don't know who's sending this. Um, But do you have any advice for people who are hoping to work in tourism but start out their career in in a way that is not um, not over tourism? Is that for me? That is for you. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, Well, I'm an educator, so you can imagine that my answer will be, uh, I think it's great, depending where you are in your educational career, uh, to take some courses. Um, uh, There are a lot of master's degrees now available in in sustainable tourism. Uh, It also just so happens that at Harvard, we do offer courses without having to be in a master's degree program. We are also an open source education program. Uh, So uh, we do recommend trying to get information on the latest issues related to over-tourism as part of your education, because this will be something that we believe will enable you to get a job in future. Absolutely. Great. Another question that we have, um, are there examples of destinations or governments that are investing in sustainable tourism um, or planning or providing infrastructure funding in a way that you think is really exemplary? This is for you too, Megan. Okay. Well, um, I think we're, you know, kind of starting, we're at the early part of the gate on this. We have only very recently reconceived how tourism should be measured and planned. For example, the climate change challenge. I mean, it really has to be brought up when you ask about infrastructure, Uh, despite the fact that we've you know, people that acknowledge that it is a scientific reality. We've known that for 20 years, but tourism planning has yet to acknowledge that. Uh, So most of the things that you've seen happening in places like Miami Beach, where they've had huge overbuilding right on the coast in major tourism areas, um, has not really been arrested. Uh, So I think uh, that, you know, we're in this early phase of suddenly realizing, say, for example, post-Caribbean hurricanes that we've just seen, that it might be possible, for example, to go green with energy. Look what has just happened in Puerto Rico, uh, where Tesla... Tesla has provided Puerto Rico with solar panels enough to run their hospital. Now, that's pretty important. So you can imagine, like, think of the Caribbean in future. They need to make this transition to solar. This is enormously important for their future. They are dependent on the tourism economy. And so, therefore, there will have to be a collaboration between high-tech companies like Tesla, others that are working on these, you know, energy grid issues, and the tourism industry in future. Is that happening now? I I wish I could say yes, uh, but I believe it is coming. Um, one of the things that Andrew has written about, and I think all of us have written about, is um, the kind of effort to say, okay, we don't want everybody in New York City, for example, in Times Square, but let's get them out to Queens and Brooklyn. Um, Iceland does this with 
trying to get people out of Reykjavik and, and into some of the less traveled areas. Is that is that a solution that you think, Megan, that you think works? Or is that um, just kind of a Band-Aid approach? Well, actually, that was part of what I was talking about, and I'll be more explicit. When you uh, have that river coming into, say, Iceland, and they're all going to Reykjavik, that's the fire hose hitting one place, right? So you're never going to get rid of the flow into Reykjavik because it is the hub for all travel to Iceland. So what do you need to do? Yes, you need to divert some of it. You have to acknowledge that no matter what you do, though, that you'll never be able to divert all of it. I think that's a little bit... Uh, almost purposely uh, deceitful, actually, uh, if the industry claims that they think they can divert enough tourism out of Reykjavik or any other hub in order to relieve the pressure on that site. That is actually not true. What has to be done is to divert some of it. And yes, it can work uh, to spread tourism. Even the uh, Airbnb, you know, for all of the pressure they're taking, uh, they can help with that. And I think they would like to help with that uh, because they can put more accommodations outside of major metro areas by working with homeowners and also give more equity to those communities in the process. But are you going to be able to completely divert that? No. And you're going to have to put in different protections in Reykjavik. Yeah. We have time for just a couple more questions, um, and we have a handful of them. So Andrew's going to go ahead and um, ask you this next one. Yeah, we actually got a really interesting question from one of our listeners, Johan. Um, Megan, uh, there's this concept of tech-enabled citizen engagement um, with destination stewardship. How can this be extended to engaging tourists themselves? I mean, we've been talking about the industry um, and destinations dealing with this. Um, how can tourists themselves be engaged in this conversation? Yeah, great question, Johan. Um, you know, you're really giving me an idea. Not that I haven't dreamed of having tourists for years be more able uh, to participate in the process of looking at the full footprint of the industry, but much of what happens is behind the scenes. And so it would really require a very unusual tourist that really is sincerely interested in, uh, I would say, back of the house. Because tourism mostly operates behind the house, behind the screen. It is a operatic production in order for you to have a great time. So how much can you measure of that behind the scenes is, is an open question. But could you measure more accurately tourism flows and, for example, the use of tourism resources, which I did want to mention, such as water, water alone. What if we were to ask tourists to, you know, I think it's a lot to ask, frankly, but to measure their water use uh, when they go to a destination and we could get a global sample, that would be incredibly important to our field. I can tell you incredibly important. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we have one last question from Aurora. Um, are there examples of destinations that promote business slash meeting slash event travel in the off season to keep the economic value um, while balancing the flow of tourism? 
Are there examples of that? I think there's lots. Yeah, that's um, what I was thinking. There's a lot of efforts to, uh, I mean, I think many, con- I mean, conference management firms generally are very aware of this crowding problem. Um, and I believe that they already work extremely knowledgeably on siphoning people, you know, into other areas that are less crowded, as do tour operators, which comes up in Andrew's article. Tour operators in general don't service the large percentage of travelers. Most travelers do travel independently, and they do more and more all the time. But the use of tour operators and also conference management teams can absolutely help to distribute tourism in a more responsible way. Um, and we lied. That was almost the last question, but we're going to um, we're going to ask an actual last question now because I, I think it's an interesting one. Um, it's from Nissa. Sorry if I'm saying your name wrong, Nissa. Um, it's how can we correct the lack of streamlined terminology in sustainable tourism? Um, we use over tourism. We started using that a while ago, but there's also eco tourism, sustainable tourism, responsible travel. Um, not a lot of clarity on what all those things mean, though. Do you think uh, using the the right terms and um, and identify you know and and describing what they mean would be helpful, Megan, to uh, really addressing issues. I've given up on that as a goal. <laughs> I don't think it's an incorrect goal, Anissa, and I think you are absolutely right. But I don't think we're going to achieve that. I've been in this for 30 years now almost, and I don't attach myself to any one label anymore. I try to avoid labels. Instead, I I do think that this concept of over-tourism has been incredibly valued valuable to my work, and I really want to thank Skift for this. Uh, Why? Because what it enables for people like me and for tourists in general is to begin to look at this in a different way. Uh, What is the tipping point and how do we prevent it? When does tourism become unsustainable? And that can be for any number of reasons. But for someone like me, what I want to know is what's causing that. I'm like a doctor. Is it the water overuse? Is it the fact that, you know, the fire hose is hitting Reykjavik and it's just too many people in one place? Is it the underfunding because taxes are not going to the right thing? So for us, and I think for the global community and for journalists like Andrew and, and Daniel, I thank them a lot because if we refocus this on how many resources are we using and when is that too much, that will mean a lot more to everyone than what the label is. Mm, That's a great point and a great point to end on because we're out of time. Um, But just a quick last note for any destination marketing organizations that might be tuning in. Um, Our research division, Skift Research, published a report earlier this year on the state of destination marketing That report and more are available to subscribers on research.skift.com. And really thanks everybody for tuning in. Um, Megan, thank you so much for joining us. This was a really valuable conversation. Really appreciate it. And um, we'll try to deliver this conversation to everybody as podcast in the near future. We'll put the slides up online. And um, that's it. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you. If you enjoy conversations like this one, consider attending one of our live events. Find out more at forum.skift.com. This show was produced by Ben Glowey, who can be found on Twitter at visible underscore sound. Assistant editor Sarah Enlow provided additional support. 
to subscribe to this podcast. Search for Skift on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and a comment to help other listeners find us. Past episodes and a link to subscribe are online at podcast.skift.com. And this has been the Skift Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.